Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use and gun violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Dave Schultz heard a sudden pounding at his front door. He rushed out of his room and hurried downstairs. It was late and the last thing he wanted was for his kids to wake up. He ran to the door and wrenched it open, letting in the biting night air. John DuPont was standing on his doorstep, teetering like a tree in the wind and holding a shotgun limp at his side. His eyes were bloodshot and glassy. Dave could smell liquor on his breath. He tried to push past Dave into the house, but Dave refused to let him go through. A hundred different ways of taking John down zipped through his mind, but he didn't want to fight. John was his friend, not to mention his benefactor. He stood firm and unmoving in the doorway. If John was a tree, Dave was a mountain. Behind him, his wife watched warily from the stairs. Dave told John he couldn't let him inside. The kids were sleeping upstairs. John didn't want them to see him like this, did he? John lurched. His red face practically glowed in the yellow porch light. He threw himself wildly against Dave once again, the shotgun swinging in his hand. Cautiously, Dave reached for the weapon. Hi, I'm Lainey Hopps, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll discuss how Dave Schultz's dreams of a career in Olympic wrestling led him to John DuPont, an eccentric millionaire and patron in 1989. We'll also explore John's tragic upbringing and the beginning of his dangerous paranoia. Next week, we'll talk about how John DuPont's increasingly unstable behavior turned Dave's dream into a deadly nightmare. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code SPOTIFY at checkout. John DuPont was born into a legacy of American aristocracy in 1938. The name DuPont signaled the type of wealth on par with families like the Rockefellers, Astors, and the Vanderbilts. The youngest of four children, 
His closest sibling in age was 11 years old when John was born. When he was two, his parents, William and Jean, separated. His mother kept the family's 600-acre estate in Newtown Square, Pennsylvania, named Lysiter Hall. The manor was a replica of Montpelier, President James Madison's home in Virginia. Thomas Jefferson, reportedly a DuPont family friend, had contributed to the original's design. Though John's childhood was undoubtedly privileged, it was also lonely. His father moved away after the divorce and his older siblings either married or attended boarding schools. Young John was often left alone on the enormous estate with only his mother and their staff for company. He ate dinner alone in his room until he was 13 years old. At one point, his mother even paid the son of her chauffeur to play with John. But when she found out John had been eating junk food at the boy's house, she fired his only friend. John was sent to a local private school, but having little experience connecting with others, he was painfully awkward and shy. Growing up so isolated, it's not that surprising that John fell in love with sports. Being a part of a team provided a sense of belonging and camaraderie he sorely missed at home. It was also possible he was looking for someone to fill the void left by his absentee father. For all his life, John reportedly envied men who had relationships with their fathers. He allegedly had to make appointments with his own, saying, and half the time he wouldn't see me anyway. There is a growing amount of research that shows how important fathers are to their children's development. Before I continue with John's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to Dr. Kyle Pruitt, a clinical professor of child psychology at Yale, children who are raised by involved fathers tend to have increased self-esteem and social skills. Fathers also serve as blueprints for future relationships. Children, boys especially, tend to seek their approval at an early age. If that validation is withheld, it can lead to a lifetime of people-pleasing. It's possible John saw his dad in the coaches and teammates he tried his hardest to impress. He wrestled for a while in high school, even though his mother disapproved. She thought the sport was for the underclasses, but all John wanted was to belong, to be one of the guys. After college in the early 1960s, his interest shifted to swimming. He dreamed of competing for the US in the Olympics. Unfortunately, his body was incapable of making those dreams a reality. It remained stubbornly thin and lacked muscle definition no matter how hard he worked. This was most likely because of a freak horseback riding accident that had cost John both of his testicles when he was a boy. Because his body could no longer produce testosterone, he had to take daily replacement shots. By his own admission, he sometimes forgot. Though his money gave him access to renowned trainers and facilities, he could never develop the athletic ability needed to compete at the Olympic level. Even so, John moved to California to work with the best swimmers in the nation, the Santa Clara Swim Club. He bought a home in Atherton to live in while he practiced. When it became clear he wasn't going to make the Olympic team, he tried his hand at the largely forgotten sport, 
of modern pentathlon. He trained hard in all five events, swimming, running, fencing, shooting, and horseback riding. He sunk hundreds of thousands of dollars into coaches and even built Olympic-level training facilities for himself on the family estate. But he still never managed to qualify. For his financial contributions at age 37, he was allowed to travel with the team to the 1976 Olympics as a manager. Sports wasn't the only brotherhood John bought his way into. Throughout the 70s, he established a close relationship with the Newtown Square Police Department. He made large yearly donations to the department and even purchased state-of-the-art bulletproof vests. He also allowed officers to use his professional shooting ranges, training a few of them personally. In exchange, he was given a badge and uniform and was allowed to perform volunteer reserve duties. The connection also seems to have given him the ability to purchase any and every kind of weapon. John had always been a collector. His childhood stash of shells and feathers grew so large, he established the Delaware Museum of Natural History in 1969. His array of weapons eventually came to include an unarmed tank, which he was known to drive around the estate. By 1985, John was 46 and directionless. He had more money than he could ever spend, but still lacked the social connections he'd been searching for his entire life. That year, he renamed the farm on his estate, Foxcatcher, after his father's old stable of thoroughbred horses. He started recruiting elite athletes to live and train there with him. Though he wasn't destined to be an Olympian himself, John discovered he could still be a part of the culture by surrounding himself with those who were. The following year, his interest in wrestling returned. He decided to found a program at Villanova University. He promised the school he would fund the entire thing himself, including scholarships. He even offered to pay the coaching staff. John knew he would need to hire some big names to help attract students. And in the late 80s, no one in wrestling was bigger than Dave and Mark Schultz. The Schultzes spent their early years in sunny Palo Alto, California, less than five miles from where John DuPont had once trained as an Olympic hopeful. But their upbringing couldn't have been more different than his. They grew up in a house full of love. Dave and his little brother Mark were two peas in a pod. Their parents divorced when Dave was four, but it was an amicable split. They were close to their maternal grandparents who lived nearby. Still, not everything was perfect. Dave was large for his age and loved to eat, so the kids in his class called him Pudge. He also struggled with reading. Sometime in elementary school, he was diagnosed with dyslexia and was required to take remedial classes. By the third grade, Dave had enough of the teasing. When a boy in his class made a joke about his troubles with reading, Dave took him down. He smashed the boy's head against the floor and cracked his skull. Though Dave got in a lot of trouble for the fight, he learned a different lesson that day. As it turned out, no one made fun of the toughest kid in school. From then on, he solved all of his problems with brute strength. 
Just before fifth grade, Dave's mom remarried and moved her kids to Ashland, Oregon to start a new job. The new house was tiny with only two bedrooms for a family of six. The boys originally slept in the sunroom until they discovered a little building in the backyard and claimed it as their space. They called it the bunkhouse. It was insulated but drafty and always dirty. They slept in sleeping bags on cots, huddling around a small electric heater for warmth. Their mother had a demanding job, so Dave was often left there to take care of himself and Mark. In his memoir, Mark says, We had to grow up faster than most other kids around us. Their time in Ashland made them both tough and independent. Then, in seventh grade, Dave discovered wrestling. On the mat, all of his disadvantages became advantages. His size and strength meant he could easily overpower his opponents. Even his dyslexia seemed to provide a boost. It's been theorized that, growing up, most people develop a dominant hemisphere of their brain. Those who don't may have something called cross-laterality. This, at times, can lead to the disorganization of information in the brain and is thought by some to be a potential cause of dyslexia. According to Mark, the same thing that caused Dave's dyslexia may have also contributed to his ambidextrous nature. As Dave grew into his body, he developed both his left and right sides. He was just flat out strong. Opponents couldn't anticipate which side he'd go for, and Dave could easily target his opponent's weakness no matter what it was. As time went on, Dave's wrestling only got better. In 1977, his senior year, he dominated the California State Championship in his weight class. He also won a freestyle tournament against a two-time NCAA collegiate wrestler. By 1985, he was one of the most decorated wrestlers in the U.S. He would go on to win 10 senior national titles and a world championship. For an American wrestler to beat the Soviets and win a world championship in the 1980s was a big deal. Not only were they world-renowned athletes, but the Soviet team was government-funded. It was a major win for the U.S. Despite all of his success, Dave struggled to support his young family with his career. He had married his college sweetheart, Nancy, and they had two kids together. His success made him a sought-after coach, and he worked at several universities. But the jobs didn't pay very well, and money was still tight. When hiring staff for the Villanova wrestling program, Dave was the perfect candidate. John DuPont called to recruit him, but Dave had just renewed a coaching contract at Stanford. He was obligated to stay at least another year. Instead, he passed along his brother's information, and John ended up hiring Mark Schultz as an assistant coach. Unfortunately, things went south quickly. Despite promising he'd be no more than a patron of the program with only a symbolic title of coach, John still inserted himself into the day-to-day operations of the team. According to Mark, John often appeared in their offices on campus unannounced and inebriated. Squabbles between John and his coaching staff led to the university dropping the team after two years. 
With the end of Villanova Wrestling, John saw the opportunity to add to his stable of athletes. Mark Schultz was suddenly out of work, and the next world championship was just on the horizon. John invited him to the farm to train. It was the beginning of Team Foxcatcher. Coming up, John DuPont builds the wrestling team of his dreams. Massive spiders, fierce crocodiles, violent kangaroos. With all of the dangers lurking within Australia, one species remains feared above the rest. Humans. Hi listeners, it's Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Crime Down Under. Every Sunday on Spotify, take a trip to the oldest continent for some of the most shocking true crime cases in modern history. Featuring a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network, Crying Down Under exposes the vicious serial killers, mysterious disappearances, and terrifying crime families whose stories still stop Aussies dead in their tracks. From the beaches and deserts to the cities and suburbs, the land down under may be vast, but the horrors are hiding around every corner. Catch a new episode of Crime Down Under every Sunday. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Eccentric millionaire John DuPont started his wrestling empire at age 50, inviting elite athletes to live and train on his family estate, Foxcatcher Farm. John and his fortune seemed to be the answer to American wrestling's financial problems. Unlike other sports, wrestling didn't provide a path from rags to riches. There was no funding to pay athletes a livable wage to train, even at the Olympic level. It made it difficult for the U.S. to compete on the world stage. Part of what made the Soviets nearly impossible to beat was the support their athletes received. The Russian team was stacked with experienced wrestlers, unlike Team USA, which offered no opportunity to make a career out of wrestling. John sought to remedy that. He paid his stable of athletes monthly stipends of $400 to $1,000. Most local clubs couldn't afford to pay their members anything, let alone monthly. But the real boon was for the wrestlers who moved to the farm itself. By 1989, John had built a 14,000-square-foot facility that was designated an official Olympic training site. The group of five or so athletes living in the guest houses got the benefit of world-class equipment and free rent. The most famous of those athletes was Dave Schultz. In 1989, Dave left his assistant coaching job at the University of Wisconsin for one at Foxcatcher Farms. His brother Mark had moved away in 1988, but was still on John's payroll. Even though Dave was only coaching part-time, the pay was almost double what he had been earning before and came with a comfortable two-story house for his family. Dave would get to train with wrestlers on his own level, most of whom he'd already known for years. For him, life on Team Foxcatcher was like being at Disneyland with all of his friends. It was a dream come true. 
His enthusiasm became John's number one recruitment tool. Once word spread that Dave Schultz was training with Team Foxcatcher, the program really started to gain momentum. By 1991, the number of wrestlers training regularly at the facilities had grown significantly. If John had hoped that he could be the face of Foxcatcher, that hope was quashed when Dave joined. He was the biggest selling point. For most outsiders, John was just the money. But to the select group of wrestlers who lived with him on the farm, he was more than that. They couldn't help but develop a fondness for the man who made their dreams possible. Many of them came to consider him a friend. Even so, there was no denying that he was odd. Dan Chade, one of the live-in wrestlers said, the conversation about John being eccentric was always out front. Everyone knew he was a little different. It was understood that his mood any given day would dictate the environment at large. Most people learned to avoid John on his off days, but not Dave. Somehow he could always handle John even when he was being difficult. Dave became the guy people went to when they were too scared to approach John directly. Until Dave came along, John's mother had been his social buffer, the one who understood him and calmed him down. When she passed in 1988, John felt adrift. He started using cocaine and drinking more heavily. He stopped contacting any of his remaining relatives, leaving his athletes to fill that role. Dave and his wife Nancy both deeply felt John's need for connection and family. They did everything they could to reciprocate his affection, spending Christmases and other holidays at the big house, Lesseter Hall. John came to their kids' birthday parties and brought them gifts like a fifth grandparent. Wrestling had given Dave a direction and sense of purpose. He could see that all John wanted was the same opportunity. Dave couldn't help but empathize and do his best to reach out to his new boss. In the study, Positive Effects of Parentification, an exploratory study among students, researchers found that children who experience parentification also tend to have increased empathy. Parentification refers to a reversal of usual parent-child roles, where the child assumes responsibilities typically handled by caregivers. The period of time Dave lived in Ashland, staying in the bunkhouse with his brother, could be considered a period of parentification. That experience might have made Dave more sensitive to the needs and emotions of others. This ability to pick up on and understand John's feelings made it easier for Dave to reciprocate his friendship. While other people found John's neediness off-putting, Dave saw through to the lonely kid underneath. In addition to his own training and coaching team Foxcatcher, Dave also privately trained John. At 55 years old, John started entering tournaments for older wrestlers. Despite Dave's coaching, he had the same old problem. He had the will and the resources, but no natural ability. This time, however, rather than step back into a symbolic role, John was determined to succeed. He launched an entirely new wrestling style for men in his age bracket. He called it the Masters and even hosted his own world championship. 
One way or another, he was going to hold a world champion title like the other wrestlers on his team. The Masters World Championship ended up essentially being a staged event. Professional wrestlers in their 40s and 50s came out of retirement to lose to John DuPont. Although it was an obvious and absurd spectacle to most people, it was very real to John. There was a tacit agreement among everyone at Foxcatcher not to treat it as anything less than an achievement on par with their own. It seemed the wrestlers were always doing what they could to pacify their boss. If John was happy, everyone was happy. But not all of his quirks were so easy to ignore. Back at the farm, John started videotaping the woods on the edge of his property. He'd play back the footage for others, repeatedly asking if they saw something mysterious moving in the trees. John sat for hours in a darkened room, staring fixedly at the grainy images. No one was sure how to answer his bizarre questions. He might have been looking to be disproved, to be comforted by someone assuring him there was nothing in the woods, but he could also get angry when others didn't see the phantom movement that was so plain to him. Dave was one of the few who never went along with the strange game, preferring to always be truthful with John. But there were plenty who did, out of insecurity or a misguided attempt to tell him what he wanted to hear. He could usually find a yes man when he wanted one, someone to agree that there were spies hiding in his trees. In response to his odd behavior, the wrestlers who lived on the farm made sure there was always someone around to keep an eye on John. They spent time with him in shifts, scheduling around training and their families. The unspoken part of the job on Team Foxcatcher was to keep John company. Though everyone took their turn, they knew he had a short list of favorites. He often became particularly attached to one guy in particular for a time. The person at the top of the list would change periodically. After a month or so, John's attention wandered, usually to the newest arrival. Among John's favorites were Rob Calabrese, one of the first wrestlers to move to Foxcatcher, Dan Chade, and of course, Dave Schultz. Eventually, John's focus shifted to Valentin Jordanov, or Valo as he was known around the farm. John became so enamored with Valo that he started sponsoring the Bulgarian team. At one point, he told people that he was Bulgarian himself. This was blatantly and provably false, as the DuPonts were famously French immigrants. But John was adamant that the reason he was so drawn to Valo was their shared ancestry. Unfortunately, John had to compete with Dave, who was close friends with Valo. In fact, Dave was the main reason Valo temporarily left the Bulgarian team to join Team Foxcatcher. He couldn't speak much English, and Dave was nearly fluent in Russian. He'd learned the language so he could understand their coaches during competitions. Try as he might, John could never be as close to Valo as Dave was. Soon, there was a noticeable and simmering tension brewing between Dave and John. Dave was funny, charming, and easygoing. 
everyone always preferred him. As his frustration with being the odd man out grew, Dave started being a major feature in John's delusions. John had often worried about people hiding in the walls of his house, but now he was sure Dave was the culprit using secret underground tunnels to mess with him. From there, things escalated until John believed Dave was controlling the weather on the farm with a machine he'd hidden in his house. As with the videos of the woods, some people tried to talk him out of these delusions, but there were some who felt it was better for John, or at least easier, to go along with it. Things were quickly getting out of hand. Coming up, John's mental health crisis escalates to dangerous levels. Now, back to the story. For years, 56-year-old John DuPont's erratic behavior had been escalating. His paranoid delusions were indulged by some of the wrestlers living and training on his estate, encouraging his wild conspiracies. Around 1995, John hired Patrick Goodale as a private security guard. He told Goodale that he'd received threats from someone living on his property. Goodale indulged all of John's delusions. He hired a crew to dig huge trenches around Lesseter Hall in search of tunnels. Professionals were reportedly brought in to scan the walls and columns to find spy equipment. Goodell undoubtedly thought that following through on these outlandish requests would firmly demonstrate to John that he was wrong. There were no tunnels and no equipment was being used to spy on him. Unfortunately, that's not how delusional thinking works. According to an article in the Industrial Psychiatry Journal, a delusion is a belief that is clearly false and that indicates an abnormality in the affected person's content of thought. Importantly, a person with a delusional belief cannot be convinced otherwise, even with direct evidence. Everyone at Foxcatcher Farm, however, remained convinced that John was still their friend. In their experience, his eccentricity had never made him a bad or dangerous guy. Unfortunately, John's problems were only just beginning. Another delusion that sprang up around this time was an intense fear of the color black. According to John, black was the color of death. He disallowed black clothing, made Rob Calabrese get rid of his black car, and even sold all the black horses. He took this delusion so far that in 1995, he fired three black wrestlers from Team Foxcatcher. Greg Strobel, one of two head coaches, told John that people were going to think he was racist, but John wasn't dissuaded. He didn't want the color black anywhere near him. It was possibly the first real sign that the wrestlers on his team wouldn't be safe from his whims. The athletes who were fired hoped USA Wrestling would penalize DuPont in some way, but afraid to upset their biggest donor, nothing was done. John started sleeping less and less, doing cocaine to stay awake until the wee hours of the morning. He became obsessive about details, staring at wood grain until he could see bugs crawling inside it. 
He sometimes scratched himself until he bled, trying to get the bugs out from under his skin. He also started spending less and less time unarmed. He'd always been a gun lover, but now he took things to a new level. On a walk with Dave in the woods, John saw something flitting in the treetops and opened fire without hesitation. Bullets flew across the sky, landing who knew where. He was far more cavalier with his weapons than a trained marksman would normally be. Wrestlers reported seeing him walking around the estate with a handgun tucked under his armpit where it could easily slip and go off. Most of the athletes stopped socializing with John at that point. Things had gone from uncomfortable to dangerous. Ever the big brother, Dave assured everyone it was going to be okay. He and Rob were two of the only ones who still checked in with John. At one point, they confronted him, telling him his paranoia had gone too far. They told him that he should talk to a doctor. That sent John off the edge. He flew into a rage. Once again, there was something wrong with him. He was always the one who needed to change, to be fixed. No one would just believe in him. It hurt, especially that it was coming from Rob and Dave, two men he thought were his friends. Just like in his childhood, he felt alone. All of the men who he'd been supporting for years were turning on him. Clearly, he thought they had only been after his money. The hurt and betrayal ran deep. Seemingly out of the blue, John had his attorneys tell Dan Chade to vacate the farm. Dan had been living in one of the smaller guest houses near Dave's family for longer than most of the other live-in wrestlers. Since the news had come secondhand, Dan didn't leave right away. He didn't know what he'd done to make John mad enough to kick him out, but he was pretty sure it would blow over soon. Then one day, a U-Haul appeared out in front of his house. John still wasn't talking to Dan, but it was a pretty clear signal that he was no longer a welcome guest. Shortly after that, Dan was in the weight room when John came in waving a gun. He pointed the weapon at Dan's chest and shouted that he wanted Dan off the farm. Terrified on top of hurt and confused, Dan told John that he'd only ever tried to be his friend. He reported the incident to John's old shooting buddies, the Newtown Square PD. The person who answered the phone reportedly laughed and said, well, I've known John a long time. He's always been a little different. Undeterred, Dan flew to Colorado to meet with USA Wrestling. He told them what happened to him and begged them to do something for the other wrestlers living on the farm. It simply wasn't a safe situation anymore. He initiated an hour-long conference call with the executive director and the board of USA Wrestling. They finally debated whether or not to cut ties with John DuPont. Some members felt strongly that this had to be the last straw. The deciding factor came when Dave, presumably on the call to speak for John and more importantly, the rest of the team, told the board that he didn't feel there was any real danger. 
he lived on the DuPont estate with his wife and kids. Around mid-November, Dan Chade returned to Foxcatcher one last time to pick up his things. Using the moving van John had left in front of his house, he packed up and said his goodbyes. Dave told him that he hoped there were no hard feelings, that John was being John. It was clear Dave couldn't conceive a world where John might turn on him. But that all changed when Dan left behind his old van, which he parked at Dave's house. All of John's attention suddenly focused on the vehicle. He worried something sinister was hidden inside and that Dave was working with Dan behind his back. One night, someone told John that Dan Chade was back and visiting Dave's house. Per his nightly ritual, John got high and drunk. Then he stormed over with a shotgun to find Dan himself. He pounded on Dave's door in the middle of the dark country night. He couldn't believe that Dave would harbor a man he didn't want anywhere near his property. When Dave answered the door but wouldn't let him in, John knew Dan had to be hiding inside. Dave told him that he was confused. Dan wasn't there. John couldn't come into his house drunk and armed. John knew there was no way of getting around Dave, and he wasn't there to hurt him anyway. He handed over the shotgun before tumbling into the house. He cut his head on a windowsill in the fall, so Nancy called the doctor to come stitch him up and take him home. The next morning, hungover and bruised, John called the police to tell them that Dan Chade had assaulted him with a bat. He reached out to his friends at the Newtown Square PD, as well as the state police demanding an investigation. When they questioned Dave, he told them the truth. That was the last straw for John. Dave had betrayed him for the final time. It was clear to John that Dave was out to get him. Meanwhile, Dave's wife, Nancy, was getting fed up. Things had been strange for a long time, but now it was too close to home, too close to her kids. She told Dave that they needed to start looking for a new place to live. At the time, the 1996 Olympic trials were still six months away. Dave, at age 36, was planning on competing possibly for the last time. He offered Nancy a deal. They would leave as soon as the Olympics were over. They would move back to California once he'd taken his final shot at a gold medal. On January 26, 1996, Dave woke up and got ready to work out as he always did. He needed to pick up his kids at school later that day, so as a joke, he wrote the word kids on his forehead so he could be sure he wouldn't forget. The athletic trainer, Dave Stern, laughed when he saw Dave enter the gym. Dave was known to be a little disorganized. It was just like him to do something so goofy as writing a reminder on his face. There was just one problem. Stern told Dave he'd never known him to look in the mirror very often. Dave smiled again and held up his hand. That's why I wrote it here too. Back at the big house, security guard Patrick Goodale checked in with John. 
The two were going to drive the property so John could point out the trees that had fallen during a recent snowstorm. There were fences to fix. As they headed out to John's car, Goodell saw him grab his camera and a pistol. John didn't usually carry when he was with Goodale. John knew, as his bodyguard, Goodale was always prepared to defend them both. What Goodale didn't know was that John had spent the last few days stewing over Dave Schultz while snowed in at his mansion. Dave, who'd spent years living on John's property, reaping the benefits of his friendship, all the while plotting against him. Today was the day that would all end. John knew Dave had to be stopped, and he would be the one to do it. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of John DuPont's story. We'll discuss the shocking end to Dave and John's friendship and the two-day police standoff that followed. For more information on John DuPont, amongst the many sources we used, we found Foxcatcher, the true story of my brother's murder, John DuPont's madness, and the quest for Olympic gold by Mark Schultz and the documentary, Team Foxcatcher, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hi there, it's Alastair from Parcast. You may have heard of the Somerton Man, Azaria Chamberlain, or the Wonder Beach Murders. But do you know the whole terrifying truth. Be sure to check out my new series, Crime Down Under, where we travel to the land down under to explore the most shocking true crime cases in Australian history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Down Under, and catch a new episode every Sunday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.